came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Every time that flag's unfurled, they come to America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here. Sunday morning. What the heck is going on? We have all those problems with what happened with the submarine, and we'll hear more about it. We have Congressman Peter King, uh, Governor David Patterson, uh, Zach Williams uh, from the New York Post about Albany, submariner Mike Reese, and went down on that submarine, the Titan, a year ago. It was an experience. We have a guest, Frank Morano, talks about what's the possibility of aliens, as a special guest role, and to start the show, my friend Michael Stoller about the real estate industry. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Catch Roundtable. This morning, I have the opportunity of having Andrea Himmel, Principal and Chief Investment Officer at Himmel Meringoff Properties. Andrea, you're a New, New Yorker, born and bred. What do, what do you see happening today in the real estate business, especially in your function? Tell us a little bit about the company. Sure. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be back on with you and um, always exciting to talk about the market, especially at a pretty wild time like this one. So for, for context, um, I'm CIO at Himmel and Marigoff Properties. We have been around for about 40 years, vertically integrated owner-operator of um, commercial office buildings in Manhattan and industrial warehouses in the boroughs. Two very different markets right now. Um, on the office side, thankfully, you know, our assets, while B buildings, are in probably what I would call A locations. And so we're benefiting from a, a fair amount of leasing that we did last year. A lot of it in uh, with long-term credit tenants. Um, Life Sciences has done especially well for us. Uh, on the industrial side, um, that's a much more, uh, I think, auspicious uh, future. We, we have um, an eight-acre site in the Bronx with a 300,000-square-foot warehouse, and that is long-term being rezoned for a large residential development site, and we're very excited about that. What, what about the opportunity of keeping it as an industrial and making it a very large industrial site? So it's currently, it's about eight acres, and... As of right, it, or as it is today, frankly, it's worth more as industrial than residential, even if we can build over 2 million square feet. But that's a function of where the industrial market is today and the lack of 421A as well as construction costs. We, over time, as long-term owners who have always believed in New York City, who have always been in emerging neighborhoods before they have emerged, Harlem in the 1970s, um, Queens in the 80s, uh, we, we are very excited about this opportunity, especially as uh, I'm a board member of Habitat for Humanity. Affordable housing, it's the most important thing I think we can work on right now. But what about, there are no 421As? No. But the train will be delivered, you know, it's timing. So there are four new train stops coming to the Bronx uh, via Metro North. The MTA is running this, and they go straight to Penn Station. We're the second stop within 17 minutes of the city. Um, as, as such, we're the largest site on that rezoning. 
and the train probably will be completed in 2027. We have leases in place a little beyond that um, on the industrial side. By by that point in time, you know, we do think 421A may not come back, but some iteration Some some iteration will probably come back. You know, uh, for a couple of years, many people would take industrial buildings and convert them into offices. Unfortunately, many of them are still vacant. What's your thoughts about uh, people then converting the office space back to industrial? It's, I mean, we, I, I mentioned this, we, we own a building in Long Island City, the Noodle Factory, and it, um, it's one of those buildings that was industrial. It still is. It's got warehouse tenancy, storage, and, and storage tenants mostly. Um, however, we, we invested a lot of capital to repurpose it more for a TAMI office market. And that office market never really um, materialized in Long Island City. And so we're touring now more tenants that are warehouse-based, even a micro-fulfillment company. So for us, I think, you know, we moved a tenant from the top floor, which has skylights and could activate the rooftop, to the ground floor. But maybe we shouldn't have done that because the ground floor has the loading and the docks, and maybe those should have been enabled for more warehouse leasing. Okay. You have a property at 408th Avenue in the Hudson Yards neighborhood. What's going on in the Hudson Yards neighborhood? So that this property is city leased, and and across our portfolio, we have a lot of exposure with to the city. We actually are big fans of having them as tenants. They're sticky, they're loyal, um, and you know we've we've put them into new properties as well as continued renewing them in, in uh, on Queens Boulevard and in Sunnyside. We have had the city since 1986 when we bought the building, and recently renewed them uh, there for a little almost 200,000 square feet. Let's talk about 525 West 57th Street, which you call a life science building. What's going there? Well, we never called it a life science building, and it always was. It, it was We bought it in 2005 for less than a work letter, um, and its tenants included at the time LabCorp, Genzyme, um, various other life science-oriented companies, such as the largest MS research foundation in the world. Um, CBS was our tenant, also at the time, paying 16 bucks a foot. They had 200,000 square feet. It's a 500,000 square foot building, M-zoned. It was originally built for Potamkin for their cars, so it has very heavy floor loads and good venting, things that are important for, for life science. We happen to be close to Mount Sinai West, which is important because if you want to get insurance coverage, there's a rule in New York State that insurance will only cover up to 250 yards from the hospital. And so we are within a stone's throw, and that has enabled us to do a fair amount of leasing with them. In the life science space in New York City, you could have gone one of two ways. You could make the bets on the venture-backed 15,000 square foot biotech companies that have you know, deadlines to meet for the FDA and therefore are supposedly willing to pay anything, and you build pre, you know, pre-builds $450 a foot on spec. We did not want to go that option. We felt like there was a lot of risk in that strategy, and so we waited it out for the larger institutions to come to us, and uh, that that's... That's in order to our benefit. T- timing is everything. Yes. So, you know, normally if on my TV show, I had my apples. Yeah. Okay, so I don't have my apple here. But how would you look at the future, the end of the year? Is the apple going to be shiny or what, what do you say? I hope that the future goes longer than it goes past the end of the year. I think the end of the year is probably, you know, still somewhat uh, cloudy and, and, and we're still in this. I think it gets worse before it gets better. 
Um, but over time, you know, interest rates will come down. I don't think yet. And I think people will return to normalcy in terms of work patterns. But, you know, I used to work in oil and gas. We never could pretend we knew the oil price or could forecast it. That's not, you know, I can just tell you that it will be better. I'm not going to pretend I know when. And especially with people like you in the real estate business, I'm certain that it will be. I'd like to thank Andrea Himmel for being here for the Stoller Real Estate Report. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Thank you. With us today is Zach Williams, and he is the star Albany reporter for New York Post. Zach, anything going on in Albany? I mean, uh, is it quiet? It's summertime. (laughs) Well, today was uh, something out of the ordinary for this late in the month of June, John. The Assembly reconvened this week to finish its business for the year. You might recall uh, (laughs) on some prior interviews me mentioning how the legislative session was supposed to end June 8th. The state Senate managed to more or less meet that timeline by finishing up the next day. But the Assembly Democrats had to come back one more time pass a whole bunch of bills, some of them controversial, most notably uh, one that was called the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act that would make it much easier to challenge your criminal conviction with new evidence. You know, current state law right now, because of this important court decision a few years back, basically leaves it to DNA evidence only if you want to challenge your conviction. But uh, as Politico New York observed uh, earlier this week, you know, what's so interesting about the session as a whole was not so much the new bills that got passed, but in many ways, the bills that had to be changed, you know, bail reform, campaign finance system. We talked about that, uh, I think, uh, earlier this month and a whole bunch of other things where they were essentially tweaking all these progressive reforms that, you know, basically to fix problems, if you will, that have emerged since they passed them in recent years. The uh, Assembly kind of ended the session with a whimper more than a bang. You know, the, the proposed legislation to expand health care for, for illegal immigrants didn't pass. But it looks like they're wrapped up for the year, at least at this point. They could always come back later in the year. This is it. Everything is wrapped up now. So wh- what what should people know? I mean, it's uh, Sunday morning. What, what what are you going to tell them? What 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 really happened? Well, I think something that's important to always remember is that the legislature can reconvene whenever the Speaker Carl A.C. or State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart Cousins want them to. But it's been a very tumultuous year. You know, you have Governor Kathy Hochul, the relative moderate, against these progressive supermajorities in each chamber. And there was a lot of disagreement over a whole host of issues throughout the year. And I think what will be very interesting this summer is to watch how the governor kind of reasserts her political position after a bruising few months. Understood. I mean, anything new on bail reform? Because people don't feel safe. They're not going to go to the office. 
as far as bail reform goes, you know, there will be pressure to change it once more next year. It's an election year after all. But I think over the summer, into the fall and the winter, you know, both sides are going to be keeping score. You know, what are examples that show bail reform is working? And what are examples of people uh, that were let go ahead of their trials uh, only to commit additional crimes? I mean, if that's what we have to say, that's what we have to say. I mean, uh, uh, I, I just worry about our city and our state. Well, there's always stuff going on in Albany, and when it seems quiet, that's definitely the time to listen uh, a little bit more carefully. And it's going to that sort of dynamic is definitely going to be playing out the next uh, at least the next few weeks until uh, something unexpected happens, just like last summer with all the Supreme Court cases. I understand, Zach Williams. Anytime there's a breaking news, please call us, and we'll you know you're going to have breaking news in the New York Post, and you'll have breaking news on WABC. Thank you. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. We'll be right back. Looking for a little common sense? You've found it. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. I'm in a New York state of mind. With us today is Governor David Patterson and has a few things to say about what's going on. And Governor Patterson, Albany, first of all, has uh, wiped the slate clean. They're all, uh, they passed the budget, but there's a few items that uh, nobody knows what really is going on. Uh, It's called the clean slate law. Can you explain in simple English to the American people what it is? John, under the theory that if a person... Uh, serves their time, that they are basically forgiven by society. Unfortunately, some people have come out of uh, prison, and the fact that they had a prison record hurt them in trying to get employment, trying to get education, that kind of thing. In other words, they didn't commit any crimes, that we would uh, basically expunge the convictions from the record, and therefore they would not have this in, in, in background checks. Now, In theory, it works, but one of the problems that we have in the state right now is you have people getting arrested 40, 50, 60 times. And when that kind of thing happens, there can never be a clean slate because they were never more than, you know, six months away from their previous conviction. So I think that the legislature's intent was positive, but I think the result of it could actually increase the number of people who are now not only out of prison, but are not out long enough for us to determine whether or not they really did learn their lesson. You know, for example, what I was afraid of, uh, Governor, is, you know, one of our companies that we own is Bristides. And does that mean if somebody uh, got out because uh, he was a murderer? See, I, 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 I worry about violent crimes. If he was a murderer and got out, can he wipe the slate clean? And if I hire him... He'll be in one of my stores on the east side, and nobody would know he was a murderer? I would have made the time longer than the legislature did. In other words, I would have made it a period of time that you would have to say, if this person did not get into any trouble, whatever it is that they did in the past, they were, they were able to turn their life around and, and live a meaningful life and a lawful life. But the, uh, right now, um, the Senate passed the legislation two weeks ago. The assembly came back this week and passed it. And it does appear that this is going to be 
a little bit of a controversy, and it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, should someone, as you described, perhaps commit a crime when no one who even was around them knew that they were a previous offender, and then that comes back up, that they, that they were. And that's, you know, that's the chance you take. Like I said, I certainly think if people serve their time and they turn their lives around and, uh, you, you know, you hope that there's no recidivism, but that doesn't always work out that way. And the number of people who are in the, uh, who've been in the system, there aren't really that many of them compared to the total population. So if we focused on those who seem to continue to commit crimes even after they've been convicted, that's one of the ways you can lower the crime rate. You know, in my vocabulary, and I'm a New Yorker all my life, I worry about violent crimes and violent people uh, being with civilized people. Uh, I don't care if, if a person stole a loaf of bread, like I usually say, it doesn't bother me, but violent crimes. Uh, let's move on. I understand New Jersey is trying to, to pass a law that kids could do whatever they want if, if they're minors, even if they're in high school at age 12, 13, 14, 15, and the parents uh, don't have to be notified. Uh, let's talk in general because I haven't seen the details of that law. What do you? I mean, I think that's that's the craziest thing I ever heard. I think it's a policy that if a child wants to uh, announce that they are of a different sex or uh, have uh, questions about their sexuality or that kind of thing, that the school would be prevented from telling their parents. Now, the I think more and more. We're moving into a society where we're adultifying children before they reach the age of maturity. So even if they do say these things, it might be a good idea that the parent know, because in the end, the parent is the custodial entity that will get blamed along with the child if the child does something that's improper. So, you know, more and more... Uh, the uh, rights of younger people are being expanded to treat them as if they are older. And although I think people, you know, probably some children know at an early age that they're different than other children or they uh, wish they were of an opposite sex, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think the fact that it's now uh, something that the parent wouldn't find out is a, a little bit unfair to the parents. And the uh, New Jersey governor apparently has been part of this policy. So we'll see how that plays uh, out. I, I thought uh, Governor Murphy was a uh, common-sense individual, but I'd be disappointed if he's really supporting that. And, and if I was a parent in New Jersey and I had uh, uh, high school-age kids, I would move out. Yeah, well, Governor Murphy's had a great record as uh, governor of New Jersey, and I'm sure maybe we'll try to bring him on next week and, and have him explain it. Let's do that. More, so that we'll get a better understanding. I don't want to... I agree with you. I don't want to criticize him unless we understand it. Exactly. Well, uh, Governor Patterson, thank you very much for uh, coming on, and we'll catch up with you again next week. So, John, on my way home, if I, you know, just kind of grab a loaf of bread from Gristidis, you, you'll let it go? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I will tell him they cannot use the Rocky Calavito bat on you. <laughs> Please. Have a good, good weekend. 
You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers. It's the Cats Roundtable. Comes true on Sunday in New York. With us today is Congressman Peter King. He is one common sense guy and uh, he's been in Congress for 28 years and a New Yorker all his life. His, his father was a police officer and he is very, very much concerned about what's going on in New York and what's going on with law and order. Congressman King, tell us uh, about your concerns and what keeps you up at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, John, as you say, you know, you and I both grew up in New York City. I grew up in Queens, went to uh, high school in Brooklyn, worked in Manhattan, went to college in Brooklyn. And I lived on the subways. I mean, constantly trains back and forth. And, you know, maybe you keep an eye out in case something was happening. But I never recall in all those years hearing any pattern of stabbings or assaults the way we have now. Just in the last week, I've lost track, I think, of at least five, six, seven stabbings, some fatal on the uh, subway system. One uh, assailant last Sunday, uh, he stabbed three women in the legs on on Sunday. Uh, and again, when you look at him, he had a record. He had five prior arrests, one for rape, one for assault, other type uh, crimes he's accused of. He has mental illness. And there's this revolving door, it seems, between uh, asylums or mental care and then people committing crimes. They go into court. They're back out in the street. They're committing more crimes. They don't get the mental uh the health care they need, and it's uh, again, it's one thing if it was one one act here or there, or an isolated event. They were in the city this big, something's bound to happen. But this is such a pattern, such a repeated pattern, which really struck to me several points. One, about how we have to do more as far as uh, the mentally ill. Secondly, judges should not be putting people back on the street until they believe there's no more capacity for violence and keep them for the maximum sentence if that's what it takes. To keep the you know the crime rate down and, uh, and to protect innocent people, but also it reminded me how many people are willing to look the other way if they saw what happened to Daniel Penny uh, when he uh, was the Good Samaritan several months ago, and now is facing 15 years in prison. So uh, it, it appears as if all of the what should be the sensible parts of our society are going in the wrong direction. The police hands are tied. Judges can't give the sentences that they uh, feel should be given. When a person does do the right thing and comes to the defense of innocent people, he ends up uh, you know, being threatened to a jail. And you have uh, people with mental illnesses. And it's a terrible thing. I'm not making fun of anyone with mental illness. It must be a terrible situation for them and their families. But they shouldn't be out on the street. And especially if they, after one violent act, a crime, they should be everything should be done to make sure they're not back in the street until there's a really almost definite chance that the mental illness is either gone or under control or is being adequately treated. Because right now, I mean, I would say to you, John, if it was your son or daughter or they were in high, high school age or uh, your wife at any stage, even though I wouldn't take on Margot anyway, but I'm just saying that. Yeah, uh, yeah. seriously. You, know, you want to have your wife on, on it's, the train? It's horrible. With those. Yeah, well, yeah. that's why New York City is not opening up. No matter how good they're putting out uh, all kinds of uh, press releases, uh, crime is down, muggings are down, down, down. Nobody believes it because nobody wants to ride in the subways because they don't want to take a chance. I mean, people being thrown off the, oh, you know, 
uh, you know, off the uh, stations and and uh, being being thrown in front of cars, being uh, dying uh, dying on the third rail. I mean, people want to feel safe, and New York City will not open up until people feel safe. I agree, John. You mentioned pushing people on the uh, you know, off, off the platform. I don't know if I ever heard of that happen so recent years. I mean, maybe there was an occasional bite or something, but now it's almost like it's a pattern that, uh, again, people who have this mental illness or people who are just deranged for whatever reason of uh, stabbing people, pushing them off the, off the platform, on, onto the tracks. These are horrible, horrible crimes. And you're right. I mean, there should be certain areas, certain things, that, certain places where you should feel safe. And the subway system for years was so safe. I mean, it was... Uh, uh, everything was under control. But now, uh, first of all, there's not enough cops. Secondly, when the cops are there, their hands are tied. And now they're even tying the hands of civilians. And, uh, again, I, I just think uh, I know that the uh, mental hospitals, many of them were closed down several years ago. And also we had the, uh, the whole concept of you know, releasing back into society as many mental patients as possible. But the fact is, if they're not ready for, for life, uh, and if they can't be uh, properly surveilled, then you're not doing them or society any good by putting them back on the streets where they can commit violent crimes, really violent, vicious crimes. So, I mean, I, I just can't imagine walking up and down a subway and stabbing stabbing women in, in the legs. One woman apparently almost lost her leg. The cop had to apply a tonica to uh, stop the bleeding. What do we have to do? I mean, the, the mayor is going to be mayor for... Uh... For uh, what, two more years, three more years? Then the governor's going to be governor for four more years. Does that mean New York dies in the meantime? I mean, San Francisco is dying. Is that yeah. is that the fate that New York is going to be? I would hope not. You know, when you turn on the television on Monday morning and they give the recap of what happened in Chicago over the weekend, how many people shot, how many people dead, how many kids shot, how many uh, senior citizens attacked. Then you look at San Francisco, it looks like something out of a, a, a bad movie from the 1960s when uh, you know enemy aliens have taken over or something. It looks, it looks terrible. People looking like zombies in the streets and uh, the streets filthy, dirty, and drug use in, in the open. Uh, you know, I had uh, faith in Eric Adams. I had hoped for Eric Adams, put it that way. He was the only Democrat saying the right thing. And he still has done, I mean, at times a good job, but... He has to be more consistent, and there's going to, I think it's a real loss that uh, Keyshawn Sewell, the police commissioner, uh, is uh, resigning because you need someone like that, and you need to give that commissioner and you know, uh, you know the, the right to do what, what he or she has to do to bring security back, uh, back to the streets. You can't keep tying the hands of the cops. You can't still have uh, a state legislature which is refusing to do anything really anything seriously to tighten up the bail laws to uh, and that and now they uh, have it that you can bring lawsuits to open up your uh, your lawful conviction almost whenever you want to Look, aren't these state legislators and these people realize what's happening to our cities there's going to be no city left i don't know if they're looking the other way this is a discussion i have with my wife all the time rosemary she says you know what are these people looking at and i that they must be looking at the world through different eyes. They must be so locked into a progressive ideology that they don't see any of the bad consequences, the many bad consequences that are occurring because of their, you know, their policies. I mean, starting, I guess, several years ago with the bail reform, 
then defund the police, then whole attitude that the uh, cop is wrong unless somehow he proves himself right. And I think the ultimate one was uh, Daniel Penny, going back to that, where you're always telling people, if you see something, do something, step in, help your fellow man. And he did that, and now he's facing 15 years in jail. So it seems like everything is going in the wrong direction. I hate to be negative. I know that the uh, you know, business see. community wants to come back to New York. I, tourism, need tourism. But uh, the more people see this, the more difficult it is to bring people back. Listen, I I'm not moving out of New York. I'm staying in New York. I live in Long Island. Work in the city, John. I'm proud to uh, you know, be working somebody in ABC. My whole life has been here. But you know, I saw my daughter. She moved to North Carolina. Uh, and more and more younger people are moving down south or out west where they feel it's a better opportunity to get a job, pay less taxes. And that's the irony with you know with these progressives. One because their crime policies. Uh, it's innocent people in the, uh, the most part, innocent people in the uh, low-end communities who suffer the most. Everyone suffers, but people in those communities suffer the most. And then other, you know, the business, business people move out, take their tax revenue with them. Businesses close. People lose jobs. It's terrible. Congressman, we stand side by side. Let's try to do this. This uh, November, it's 51 out of 51. City council seats are up. Let's stand side by side and try to make a difference and, and tell them that we want, we want New York back. I'm with you, John. Absolutely. Talk to you again real soon. See you on Monday. And God bless America. Thank you, John. Let's enjoy your Sunday. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. We have a guest, Frank Morano, as a special guest role. Meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Well, that's right. It is time for our weekly look at the most interesting 48 blocks in America. And as I alluded to, everybody is talking about the three W's. You have weed, which uh, people are starting to say, well, maybe there's a little too many. There's far too many weed shops in Atlantic City. You have the water park, which is opening this weekend. It kills me that I am not there to enjoy it. And you have whales or wind. They're sort of interchangeable in terms of the three W's. And it's looking like the Atlantic County commissioners are seeking to delay these wind farms, but some people want a full-out moratorium on these wind farms. That's one of the reasons I'm uh, grateful to Bruce Afrin, who is joining us. He is an attorney for several residence groups that are actually suing to stop these offshore wind farms. Bruce, thanks for getting up early for us. Oh, thanks, Frank. Glad to be here. Bruce, uh, tell us about your uh, lawsuit. Who are you representing? What are you trying to do? Well, Frank, I represent three major shore groups, Save LBI, Protect Our Coast, New Jersey, and Descend Brigantine Beach. And they've joined together in the first of a series of lawsuits to block these really close inshore wind farms which will be 15 miles from AC and Brigantine and Ocean City. And they're going to be fully visible to anyone on the beach. They're right in the middle of whale migration corridors for the blue whale and the north, the uh, right whale, the rarest animals on Earth. And they're going to destroy marine habitats. 
The uh, visibility argument is a is a potent one for for me. Uh, you alluded to whales, and this is something person after person, the, Congressman Jeff Van Drew and many others, even just last week, uh, Councilman uh, Jesse Kurtz, they've all said they believe that there's a strong correlation between the beginning of the mapping for these wind farms and the whale deaths. Do you believe that, and do your clients believe that? Well, certainly we're concerned about it, and we're looking in to see what the correlation is. You know, when these vessels use sonar to map the ground and whales migrate using sonar right in the same area, we're concerned that this is the reason for these increased deaths. But let me say that once these towers are built, hundreds of them, 1,100 feet tall, 5 million pounds each, those whales that migrate through are going to either be confused, they're going to wash up on shore in greater numbers, or they're going to leave the area, and they'll decline even from their low numbers now. You know, there are 2,000 or so blue whales in the world. Some of them migrate through our area, and they're going to lose habitat. The right whale is very rare. We've done miracles preserving these animals. And now this program to save the earth is going to destroy these species. Rye Rivard is a reporter for Politico. He was on CBS News in February, and he basically says he doesn't think there's any link between wind farms and whale deaths. This is what he said at the it's time. It's really a coincidence in the technical sense of the word. There's been pre-construction activity and a bit of you know, minor construction activity for wind farms uh, on the Atlantic seaboard. And there has been an unprecedented or unusual number of whale deaths, um, particularly in recent months. And there has been this thought that there could be a connection, although there really is no evidence that there is at this point. And I also got an email uh, when I announced that I was going to be talking about this from somebody that's a that's a conservative and he's a pretty, pretty straightforward guy. He wrote me the wind developers have obtained leases for space offshore, but no developers have been granted a license to provide power. None of the factories to assemble the turbines has even been cited yet. In fact, none of the factories to even build the components to build the turbines have even been cited, permitted, and developed. So he asked me, what exactly are the offshore wind companies actually doing to kill the whale? Um, what, what is your answer to that cynical New Yorker? Well, what's happening is there are sounding vessels using sonar to map sites on the seafloor for installing wind turbines. And the, the theory is that the sonar is confusing the whales and the dolphins because they use sonar to navigate. Now, it's not absolutely certain. But what we do know for certain is that once these are built, and they will be built starting in seven or eight months unless the courts block it, it will destroy the habitat for these whales. It'll actually concretize the seafloor. It'll harden it. It'll eliminate species habitat. Mm. And, Frank, it's going to absolutely destroy the shore for the humans who use it. The developers actually have issued schematics showing hundreds of these towers fully visible from the shore. People go there to get away from industry, to get away from civilization, and they're going to see an industrialized seashore right off the coast of AC and Ocean City. Uh, now, a- absolutely. 800-848-9222. I'm going to take calls on this a little bit later. Um, given everything you said, the visibility issues, the questions about the whales, the uh, disruptions to marine life and all sorts of other things, who pushed for this, either on a, in a corporate sense or on a legislative sense, 
it doesn't seem like there was this massive demand for offshore wind energy. Who were those that led the charge for this? Well, for one thing, Governor Murphy is leading the charge. He wants to declare New Jersey carbon free by 2050. Look, that's a fine goal, but not if it destroys the most valuable natural resource New Jersey has. So the governor is fully behind this, and he's pushing full speed ahead. Now, the governor doesn't go to the beach. He's got an estate in Italy where he goes for the summer. But for the ordinary person, this beautiful shoreline that is so meaningful is going to be destroyed. So we have a lot of people politically who are pushing for this. And I have to tell you, Frank, there are companies that will make billions of dollars from this. This is not low-level industry. This is something that will bring in vast amounts of money to GE. It makes $13 million on every turbine. Wow. They want to put up thousands on the East Coast. Construction companies are going to make hundreds of millions in consulting, engineering firms. We're talking about a boondoggle of enormous extent, and all in the name of saving the planet, but really it's going to line the pockets of a few companies right, it's and a, destroy our shoreline. It's a different type of going green than what it's being sold to the public okay. as. That's uh, a way of putting it. One of the criticisms that I hear of people who oppose offshore wind, whether it's for environmental reasons, whether it's for marine life reasons, whether it's for visual aesthetics, one of the things that I always say is, oh, those folks were always going to be opposed to wind energy and the whale deaths, they're just using that as an excuse to oppose wind energy. Is there any truth to that, Bruce? Are the people that are leading the opposition to wind energy, say, people that tend to uh, benefit from the energy status quo, as it were? You know, it's a nonsense argument. In fact, it's the fossil fuel companies that are investing in offshore wind. Atlantic Shores is 50% owned by Royal Dutch Petroleum. So the idea that somehow anti-wind people are somehow in bed with the oil companies is nonsense. It's the oil companies that are investing in this. And the truth is, those who are opposed to offshore wind are trying to save another part of the environment, the seacoast that we all treasure. We've worked very hard to preserve it, and now, in the name of protecting the environment, it's going to be destroyed. You know, something people don't realize, President Trump in 2020 exempted all of the seacoast south of Virginia from offshore wind. It's only the northern states that are bearing the burden of this. Interesting. I actually, I, I'm sure I knew that at the time, but I had forgotten that. So what has the Atlantic County Board of Commissioners done with respect to wind development at this point? What have they said? What have they done? Right. Well, in fairness, it's uh, Mike Donahue is the attorney who is handling that case. But what they're doing is they're endorsing a resolution to fully mobilize and oppose this development. And I believe they're also moving in court to set aside certain preliminary approvals from the state. Uh, my group has now opposed the state's approval of the federal plan. The federal plan can't go ahead unless New Jersey's DEP approves it. Uh, so both the AC commissioners and my group are opposing these preliminary steps, but they're very necessary if it's going to go forward. And what is the next step with respect to the lawsuit that you and your clients have filed? Well, the state has 30 days to give us the record, and then our brief will be filed in August. We are looking into new lawsuits as well, though, 
because there's a serious legal question as to whether the Interior Department is even allowed to give these leases. When President Trump exempted half the eastern seaboard, legally, it's questionable whether the government can force these off New Jersey and New York if North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida are exempt. So there's a second area of litigation we're looking into. Thirdly, once these permits are approved, then we can go to court to directly challenge the federal government because it's disregarding all of the environmental harm that will arise. So there's three levels of lawsuits. And I can tell you the offshore wind energy companies are going to face a mounting, mounting challenge in court. Uh, that I think that's uh, I think that's clear. Are you optimistic that the combined forces in opposition to offshore wind in New Jersey specifically are going to be successful? I am, Frank, and for two reasons. One, I think logic tells us we're going to really destroy the environment. And secondly, these companies themselves are already starting to back out. They're already trying to ask for better deals from the Board of Public Utilities, and many of them are losing their financing because it's unprofitable. It only works if the Fed subsidize it, and they know they're going to lose their shirts ultimately from offshore wind. Interesting. Uh, let me end with the way that I end all of our AC segments, and perhaps the only thing more controversial than wind energy and the fight over it is your answer to this question and the debate that it's likely to engender. Irrespective of cuisine, if you had to pick your absolute favorite restaurant within Atlantic City, what would it be? I honestly, Frank, don't want to take sides. So I'll leave that to everyone else. <laughs> Very well. All right, Bruce Afrin, please keep us uh, posted on this and uh, anything else you're up to. Appreciate it. And joining us now is Michael Reese, who was on the Titan sub on an earlier trip. Uh, Michael, first of all, our thoughts and prayers. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard this terrible news that just broke? You know, just to be perfectly candid, as a man who'd been through this, my wife and I, when we heard the news on Sunday that the sub was missing and it lost communication, we knew it would be a bad ending. We we knew that, you know, we tried to stay optimistic. We were interviewed a lot and tried to look on the bright side of things. But this was a very well-built sub and a very responsible company, but they were at the mercy of the harshest environments in the world. And when you start, when you hear one small thing goes wrong, uh, you know it's going to have dire consequences. What was your reaction to? Because you knew some of these guys, right? Uh, at least some of the ones that were on this Titan sub were on what the ship that led you out. Yes, I, I knew. I knew Stockton Rush, the founder of the company. He was piloting the sub. Uh, you know, this he was a visionary. He's the great. American dreamer, and he infected us with his dreams. And as I say, he he was a brilliant man. He was an engineer. He he was a wit. He he was a salesman, uh, and he was an excellent pilot. And uh, that was it. He tried to do the impossible, and he actually succeeded. You know, ten times he brought ten different voyages down to the to. Uh, to the Titanic before his luck finally ran out. What is it like down there? You were down there. What was it like? It's an amazing thing. People love this part of the story that I got on the submarine, and even though I was filled with trepidation, and even though I was hugely excited about the adventure of a lifetime, 
I fell asleep on the way down. It's a two and a half hour drop straight down. And he built, you know, the submarine on the inside is dark and warm and comfortable. And there's nothing but blackness outside the small porthole that I dozed off and didn't wake up till we, we touched bottom. Did you meet? Yeah, I'm Hamish. Uh, he talked to me a couple of months ago, and he wanted to buy one of my 727 uh, jets. Oh, my. He, uh, you know, that it attracted an amazing group of people. I heard about one or two people who seemed to just be record setters, and I got to get there, and I got to do this. But most of them were just people like me, just people who loved the world and had kind of a boundless curiosity to see things with their own eyes. You know, they they weren't skydivers and they weren't people who climbed Mount Everest just to get a selfie up there. They're people who really just wanted to be places and see what the world had to offer. Now, you're you're a writer, right? You're a writer with The Simpsons. Isn't that is Uh, that correct? I've been with The Simpsons for 35 years and writers have a lot of free time. And I spend all of mine traveling. If you allow me, did you have to pay? Yes, I did. I paid quite a bit. My wife. Two hundred and fifty thousand. Is that that's what uh, they were saying? You know, candidly, I don't know. My wife just kept saying, "I got a good deal," and I, you know, I don't know if she got it for half price or for ten dollars off. But you know, we all love a bargain. Well, and then if she bought life insurance, then she couldn't lose. <laughs> I, I I apologize for for making a joke on a, a bad day like this, and uh, but uh, that's all we can do right now. And uh, and I feel bad for those families. I feel bad. Uh, uh, I got to know Hamish a little bit, and uh, it's very very sad. It is so sad. I, you know your thoughts too of what's the future now of, of these sort well, of private endeavors. Too. Well, no, I want to know how much time did you spend down there looking at the uh, Titanic, and did you see, did you feel like you saw something worth seeing? Yes, I'll tell you, my experience, which was a little off, which is you have, it takes two and a half hours to get down, you have three hours on the ocean floor, and then two and a half hours to go back. And it's limited to about 10 hours at the most, just because you have to come back in daylight so that your your ship can find the submarine bobbing in the water. So you have three hours down there, and we landed about 500 meters away from the Titanic. Just And I heard that number again today, that the, uh, the submarine seemed to have imploded 500 meters away from the Titanic. So Correct. I, I recognize that location. But when you land there, you don't know where you are. You know, you're, you're in the darkest darkness you can imagine. And we spent two and a half hours just groping in the dark, using our best estimate to find where the Titanic was. And with 20 minutes to go before we had to leave, we stumbled on it. And, you know, I got the Instagram experience. We took a picture of the porthole and the anchor. We got, I got to see the bow of the ship. Uh, and then we had to go, and it wasn't. It you wasn't, mean they were that disoriented? Were they? It took them two and a half hours to find it after they they landed on the bottom. 
That is correct. It's, you know, when you, we drop like a stone, we drop directly above the, uh, the sinking site, the Titanic site, but there are in two and a half miles, there are underwater currents that will buffet you this way and that. And your compasses don't quite work right when you're down there. And so you're going on maps and using just using common sense. So let me ask you, Michael, based on that, the fact that they believe they lost contact at an hour 45 um, and maybe it's catastrophic very quickly. You think it was just obviously an implosion that just happened so fast. I think it happened so fast. And, you know, it's it's in the scale of things. It's a large sub that if if there was the slightest imperfection, a scratch or something like that somewhere in the, the entire complex vehicle that could have been all it took to uh to to make it implode absolutely michael reese thank you so much for being with us thank you so much bye-bye thank you for being with us for the cats roundtable local edition the number one show on sunday mornings in new york keep listening to us for the cats roundtable national edition between nine o'clock and ten o'clock so we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news